So it's, again, it's my pleasure to be here, and I can boldly say this is probably the most international church I've ever been at. I mean, just looking from here, seeing different faces, seeing different colors, seeing different colors of hair, different styles of hair. Some of us are even putting on someone else's hair. Uh, the Africans were the ones laughing at that. They understand what I'm saying. Now, in that kind of diversity, it's always nice to see things that unite us. You know, Christmas is all about a child being born. Um, but one of the things, when children are born, and I think all around the world, when children are born, one of the things that we like to think about, and some of us here that have had children, uh, is what's this child going to be when they grow up? What's this child going to be when they grow up? Now, in my generation, my parents generation were very, very specific. They would ask the question, but they will answer the question as well, right? So I was meant, at one point, I was meant to be a neurologist, uh, an oncologist, whatever that was. I knew that at the age of five, and then my dad changed his mind, and then we were meant to be a brain surgeon, and eventually I was meant to be a neurologist. Now, because of some illnesses, I have been to many neurologists. I'm not yet a neurologist. But things changed, you know, there were white collar jobs, you wanted to be a doctor, you wanted your children to be lawyers, but then something happened. It's called the English Premier League. <laughs> and people started saying that what you could earn in a year by being a brain surgeon, you could earn in a week. And like, you're gonna be a footballer. That's, that's, that's how they started thinking. That's people of my generation. But you see, that question of vocation, what is this person going to be, is very, very tied to the question of purpose. Because what you fulfill in your vocation is really getting at the heart of why am I in this world and what am I called to do? That's my purpose. The American writer Mark Twain said, the two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day you find out why. Now, even if he is maybe overstating the case, he's actually getting very close to the truth. Purpose is something that is very deep in our heart and our consciousness. In fact, in a, an immigrant city like uh, Dubai, many of us have come here to either discover our purpose or to express our purpose. And yet, this question is very much a conundrum. We're still trying to solve it for some of us in the earlier stages of our lives. And for some of us in the latter stages of our lives, we're still wondering, I've not really found my purpose. What is it? And you know, this is a question that actually plagued the ancient Greeks. But before that, even as Christians, maybe we may not be saying that what's my purpose, but we often ask the question, what's God's will for my life? As I was saying, it plagued the ancient Greeks, and many of us know this, that when we were young, you actually thought that you had an original thought in your mind, a question or something, and you're trying to say, why isn't this happening all around the world, and I'm going to solve it. And 30 years later, you were 15 when you thought about it, now you're 45, and you're seeing that people have been thinking about it for centuries. Well, this question about purpose, the ancient Greeks actually thought about it. But rather than think about it just in a specific, personal way, what's my purpose, they thought about it in a universal way. What is purpose for life? They didn't think about it just like, why am I here? But they thought about it in, why are we here? Is there any real reason for being here? 
I know they were correct because you cannot really think about specific personal purpose without thinking about ultimate purpose. Let me give you an example. I'm sure some of you here uh, who are now uh, um, fathers and mothers of very young children, you always thought when your parents told you to do certain things, you always thought, I will never be like that when I'm, I'm, I'm a parent. I'll never be like my mom. And then one day you do something like, oh my God, I'm my mom. Well, I've had that moment recently. My dad always told us how he was a wonderful cook. I never saw him cook. <laughs> Since we moved back to Nigeria, I haven't cooked at all. But when I used to cook, I really did used to. Take something like pasta. When you cook pasta, you put hot water on, then you throw in the pasta, and eventually, you know, most of us will put in a bit of oil and some, Salt. What is the purpose of the salt? Well, the purpose of the salt is to give the pasta a certain kind of taste, isn't it? That's the purpose of the salt. But the purpose of the salt is tied into the purpose of preparing pasta. You wouldn't really know the purpose of the salt without understanding that there's an ultimate purpose of pasta. You don't put salt in ice cream, do you? No, because ice cream is meant to be sweet. And salt doesn't bring out sweetness. And so you cannot really discover, according to the ancient Greeks, and I think they were dead on there, you cannot really discover specific personal purpose without thinking about ultimate purpose. And the Greeks thought, they called this the rational principle by which all things exist. That was the thought they were having. What is the rational principle by which all things exist? They didn't know quite how to describe it, but they gave it one word. They said it's called Logos, from which we get the suffix logi, so technology, biology, anthropology. Now, the New Testament, where we find the book of John, where we got our reading from, is written in Greek. But John, the apostle that wrote this book, though he understands Greek and probably engaged with this question, was a Jewish Christian. And so he wants to look at this question of the Logos an ancient Greek question, with his Jewish foundations, but answering it in a uniquely Christian way. Now, for this kind of cosmopolitan audience, I'm sure you like that, right? An ancient Greek question, Jewish foundations, and a Christian answer. Something like a Filipino question, Indian foundations, and a Nigerian answer. I'll spare you that today. <laughs> but I believe the question of purpose is also addressed, even for our contemporary times, here in John. And I want us to think about this thing of ultimate purpose through three questions. Let's answer these three questions. Where is it? What is it? And how can I get it? Where is it? What is it? And how can I get it? First question, where is it? Now, Lagos is very similar to Dubai in that it is a, almost a merger of both traditional and um, uh, modern um, uh, uh, ways of thinking, or uh, um, traditional and modern concepts or worldview of life. So by traditional, I mean um, older things that focuses more on community, and by, by um, modern, I'm thinking much more individualistic coming from the West. Now, if you try to answer the question of purpose through a traditional lens, you will think, what is my purpose to life? Well, my purpose is to enhance and not damage the reputation of my family, of my tribe, of my group, 
Now, the problem with this is that this leads to a burden for you carrying the burden of that family, or you become a people pleaser. You don't actually do anything that pleases yourself, but it's what the group believes. That's what you have to live for. Or this could also lead to tyranny, the group actually being tyrannical upon your life or a loss of individuality. You really cannot define yourself apart from the group. But in the modern sense, if you actually answer this question exclusively through modern eyes, well, purpose would be all about self-fulfillment, maybe in wealth, in marriage, in a career, or in power. The problem with this is that it leads to pride, and the heart of pride is self-absorption. And so if you don't, if you succeed, you'll become arrogant. If you fail, you'll become crushed. By the end of the day, you, if you succeed, you want everyone to look at you, see how successful you are. If you fail, you want everyone to look at you, see how miserable you are. So either the traditional or the modern sense of answering purpose do not help us. But these things that we, the world defines for us as very important, whether it's liberty, wealth, fame, knowledge, family, tribe, we call these things, one word we can use for these things is life. Now, when I say life, I'm not talking about the origin of life. I'm talking about the quality of life. Quite often, if you meet someone who's going through a terrible time, tragedy upon tragedy, you hear the person say something like this, is this what life is about? But in verse 4, John, the writer, tells us that life, and even um, John here, uh, John? Yes, John also told us, life is connected to Light. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. In other words, if you think of light as discovery of purpose, you know, most times when we don't know something, we're saying we're in darkness, but if, we've been, if we find the answer to it, we say we've been illuminated, we found light. The discovery of your purpose is like light, and the achievement of that purpose is like life. The discovery of your purpose leads, and the achievement of your purpose is like light to life. Now the question is, where then do I get the light from if I'm in darkness? Allow me to bring in one of the most celebrated thinkers of our modern time, uh, someone that most people turn to if you want to answer the big questions of life. His name is P. Diddy, (laughs) or Puff Daddy, or Sean Combs, or whatever. In a recent address to students in Howard University, um, the graduation ceremony, he said this exactly, when you're in darkness, remember the power of you. You are your own light. Remember the power of you. You are your own light. And in verse 8, we meet John the Baptist, who in the Gospel records is spoken about in very high terms. He's a morally astute person. If anyone had light from him, it would be John the Baptist. What does it say in verse 8? He himself was not the light. In other words, PDD is dead wrong. Light doesn't come out of darkness. The people in darkness are not the ones who bring the light. The light, as we see in verse 9, the true light is coming from outside the world and is coming into the world. 
In other words, this knowledge is the knowledge of revelation. It doesn't come from you, it comes to you. And John the Baptist, as a prophet, as we see in verses 6 to 7, came to testify. As a prophet, he was revealing that light. So your specific purpose is tied to the ultimate purpose, but the ultimate purpose will only be understood through ultimate revelation. And how do we get or where do we find this ultimate revelation? Well, verse 1, John takes us to the beginning. He says, in the beginning. Now, this is really important because most times if you want to solve a problem, quite often if you're analyzing, you'd say, let us get to the genesis of the problem. Let's find its root. So the question of why are we here is closely related to how did we get here? And so we want to find that out. What is the genesis? And so we go to our second point. The second point, what is it? Or the second question, what is it? Now, in verse 1, John says, In the beginning was the word, the Greek logos. In the beginning was the logos. Now, the Greeks understood the logos to be this abstract thing. They didn't give it any kind of personal personality. It was this abstract, rational principle, you know, sort of like equations, the way we think about equations, or the law of gravity. But they felt that this abstract set of maybe thoughts or things would lead us to ultimate purpose. But Jews had a different concept. Remember, John is a Jew. If you read the book of Proverbs, particularly chapter 8, verse 22 and following, you will find out that the Logos, or what, he called, what was called wisdom at that time, wasn't just about an it. It wasn't just about a what. It was a who. I, wisdom, was there at the foundations of the world. And we find that here in this Logos, verses 2, it says, verse 2 and 3, it says, He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that was made. So this Logos is personal. And this Logos created all things. Now, we understand, just looking at the keyboard right in front of me, if I continued playing this keyboard and I was expecting rhythmic, uh, percussive kind of sounds, drumming sounds, and it wasn't producing drumming sounds, and I said this is a fake keyboard, you would say, no, you are the fake person with fake thinking. Why? Because the designer of this keyboard did not design it to actually produce drumming sounds. That's why we have drums. For you to understand the purpose of a thing, you have to think of the design of the thing. But for you to understand the design of the thing, you need to go to the designer. To flourish and to understand your purpose in this world, you have to go to the creator of this world. That's the personal logos. So, the logos, according to the Jews, is personal. Another thing about the logos, if we read, the logos isn't just personal, but the logos is God. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, Jews will be all right with that. And the word, the Logos, was God. 
Ooh, tension, Jews and Christians. You see, because as Christians, we do believe Jewish foundations, there is one God, but we also believe that in that one God, that being that is God, you have multiplicity of persons. Now, this isn't a logical contradiction because it's not the same uh, different answers in the same relationship. It is saying there is one God, one being, but that one being is three persons. And here, one of the beings is the Logos. He is with God, but he's also God himself. So this personal Logos is also divine. The personal Logos is divine. In other words, when he says there is God, but there's also the word that is God, it means for me to articulate this God, I need to express him so well that the expression is also himself. Now, where do we find that? Well, one place we find description about this Logos is exactly where we're looking at today. It is in the Scriptures, the Bible. That is, the Word made text. Where we find revelations, he's spoken through the prophets. You will not really find your purpose, true purpose, the ultimate purpose in life, if you're not familiar with the Scriptures. And there's even one more thing. This logos that is personal and divine and revealed in the Scriptures also became a man. Verse 14. The word, the logos, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him. Now this, I don't know how to express it, but it's, for some of us that have gone through personal tragedy, at the point of that tragedy, someone came to meet you and said, describe to me how you feel. You wouldn't be able to articulate it in words, would you? Sometimes we turn to groans. And those groans, though they are not propositions, they actually communicate in a greater way what you are feeling. It also reminds me of a movie on the other extreme. I don't know how many of us have seen The Pursuit of Happiness. It was a movie done in the mid-2000s by Will Smith. Really a film about the American dream and all of that kind of propaganda. But um, in that film, if you remember, the framers of, of, the, of America talk about the Constitution and it opens with the issues of uh, their inalienable rights that are given to mankind, given by the Creator. One is life, the other is liberty, and the last one is the pursuit of happiness. Now, they were very careful not to define what happiness was. Now, in this movie, you have this guy who is down on his luck. His wife has left him. He's struggling to find the American dream. He then loses his house. He's a bit of a salesman, but he's not actually finding much success. But then he's very good with numbers, and so he gets an opportunity to intern at a stockbroking firm. And though he's going through this, he's not really living in the house. He's taking his son to school. They're looking for food. It's really, really difficult. But somehow, at the end of the day, he gets his final interview, and he eventually gets the job. And so he's shaking all the top people in the, in the place, and then he leaves. He has tears in his eyes, and he goes outside, and people are going down, you know, the New York street, and he wants to just 
burst out in joy. And what happens next is he throws his hands into the air and the narrator of the film then says, this, this is happiness. In other words, it wasn't, it wasn't possible to describe the happiness and the joy that he felt with propositions you needed to see a picture. Here's an assignment for you. Who is God? Three paragraphs, 500 words. Describe him. Now, you can have a picture of God, but for God to truly reveal himself, the infinite God, to reveal himself to finite men, the moral perfect God, to reveal himself to sinful men, the only way he could do that was to condescend and to become a man himself. And so that when we say, where is God? We say, well, I can't really describe, but there he is. That's what John the Baptist said. A man. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, the icon, the express image of God. And we find that person in verse 17 to be the person of Jesus Christ. You see, other religions will give us abstract principles or laws or paths to God. It's only in Christianity that you say God has become a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. So follow the sequence. My specific purpose is rooted in ultimate purpose. Ultimate purpose is rooted in the Logos. The Logos is a personal being. This personal Logos is also a divine being. This divine personal Logos is also a hu- became a human being, and this human divine Personal logos is Jesus Christ. What is the ultimate purpose for living? Jesus Christ. But then if it's Jesus Christ, how do I then get connected? I mean, if you've been in church long enough, they say the answer to everything is Jesus. But then there's some specificity about Jesus that then make you be able to really discover this personal purpose. And that takes me to my third question. How can I get it? Well, there are two words. One is recognizing. The other one is receiving. We see that in verse 10, although they came in negative, in the negative, and we'll get to that. But recognize him and receive him. Let's take the first one. We have to recognize Jesus, but Jesus for who he truly is. Because Christianity is not the only religion that talks about Jesus. Some people think of Jesus as a spiritual guru. Some people think about Jesus as their personal lover. There are many Jesuses all around the world, and so we are saying, will the real Jesus please stand up? (laughs) Now, but where would we find him? Now, the book of John, where we're reading today, is called the prologue, is 1 to 18, and it the writer sophisticatedly takes many themes that he's going to develop as the narrative develops throughout the book, but he then concatenates them in these 18 verses. Different themes. New birth, you see more in, in, uh, that we see in verses 12 and 13. We see that explicated in, 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 in uh, chapter 3. We see a lot of the talk of the Holy Spirit in chapter 7 and, and 14, 15, 16. One of the things that comes all through is this thing, this duality between light and darkness. And so when we're talking about light and darkness here, and we say that this light comes from outside, eventually this Jesus in chapter 9, verse 5, says, I am the light of the world. Now notice what he did not say. He did not say, I am the light 
from the world. You see, in verse 5, he, because, because in verse 5 it says that the light shines in darkness and darkness has not overcome it, we see that the world is in darkness. So this Jesus cannot just emerge from the world. He's not the light from the world. If he was the light from the world, he will not be able to give life, as we see in verse 4, to all of mankind who are in the world. One of the things that we're very good at is trying, we know that we're in darkness, but then we try to find our own light. We look in different places. For some of us who are single and desire so much to be married, we look for light in different relationships. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman at the well who is looking for her light through romance. She first tries marriage. Marriage didn't work for five, five times. She realized it wasn't going to work, but she still kept on pursuing romance. And I have a friend who once told me, oh, my husband came and delivered me from spinsterhood. Some of us actually look for it in a career. We're finding light there. Maybe my darkness is as a result of the poverty that I came out from. If I have this amount in my bank account, then I would have found the light. There are many different lights we find or look for. They're available in the world. We look for them. Any light you find apart from Jesus, the Bible calls that idolatry. Because then you're making things that do have some purpose and you're turning them into ultimate purpose. You're turning things that are created into the glory that belongs to the creator. And once we have idolatry in our lives, that leads to what the Bible calls sin. He's not the light from the world. Now, I don't know about you, I often have a problem admitting when I have expressed darkness. My wife will tell you that. In other words, you don't like to confess because confession of your sin or confession of what the things you've done that are wrong, when we think about it as a formation of identity, if I did what was wrong, does that mean I am wrong myself? But you see, when the light comes, it's not here to come to embarrass us or to condemn us. The light is there. Remember, he, did, he said, I'm the light of the world. He didn't say, I'm the light from the world, but neither did he say, I'm the light against the world. No, he's here to shine upon us. Arise, shine, as was read to us in Isaiah 60. For your light has come. The light has come for us to arise and to shine. John 3, 17. He did not come to the world to condemn the world. Jesus is here to shine the light in our darkness, but for us to find grace and truth. Verse 14b, when he revealed God, we saw God's glory as the one who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. What is this grace and truth? Now, remember, John is a Jew, and he's building on Jewish foundations. Now, in the Old Testament, the first and the foundational prophet of the Old Testament was a guy called Moses. And Moses delivered the people of Israel out, well, God delivered the people of Israel out of Moses' mighty act and brought them to a wilderness where God is now saying, look, these people I have saved by grace because Moses told them, stand, don't do anything and see the salvation of your Lord. These people I have saved by grace, I want to enter into a covenant relationship with them. 
Now, in this covenant relationship, Moses is saying, for us to know you, we need to know you deeply. Can I see your face? We cannot journey to the promised land if you do not go with us, but we need to know you. And God said, well, if you see me, you will die. No man can see me and live. But he said, you know what? Because you're asking for something that is really good, I'm going to do something. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll pass by. You'll see my back parts, and I will proclaim my name. And so in Exodus 35, Exodus 34, verse 5 to 7, he says, The Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. That's Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. The Hebrew word pairing of that love and faithfulness when translated in Greek is what we find to be grace and truth. What John is saying is saying that the God that was revealed in the Old Testament was the true God, but what takes us the difference between the Old Testament and New Testament is not a different God. It's not an angrier God to a more loving God. It is a God clearly more revealed. So Moses, through the law, has shown us a God full of grace and truth. But Jesus Christ brings a greater grace instead of the grace or in place of the grace of Moses that actually shows us the fullness of God's glory, grace and truth. In fact, that's why a better translation is what we see in the NIV for, verse, uh, for verses 16. Out of his fullness, rather than we receive grace upon grace, it's better translated, out of his fullness, we have all received a grace in place of a grace already given. The grace already given in the old covenant was something. But when Jesus came... The God that Moses could not look at face to face, John now says, we've seen him face to face, and he, he takes the full grace and the glory of God. And so he's bringing a new covenant to us. How would you find your specific purpose? You have to discover Jesus in this new covenant that is full of grace and truth. But this grace and truth also shows us the glory of God, isn't it? Verse 14, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. What is glory? And how does John show us glory? Again, I spoke of the English premiership, right? If you think of some wonderful players in the world like Lionel Messi and Ronaldo, sometimes they score a great goal, and the only thing we can say is what a glorious goal. Because quite often, the extraordinary we see as glory. And so when John is writing, in the next chapter, as he starts to narrate the story of the life of Jesus, they get into a party, and there's no more wine. Now, I lived in Manchester and for a while, and in Manchester, we often used to say about Manchester United is the Manchester United fans, when they were sad, when United lost, when I was happy, but when they were sad, they drank because of their sorrow. But when they were happy because United won, they drank <laughs> because they were so happy. And so you get into a party where some people are really sad because the lady didn't get married to the guy that she wanted to get married to. So she's sad. She needs wine. But some people are happy because they're happy about the couple. Maybe they match made the couple and they're happy. They need wine. And Jesus is in a wedding at Cana Galilee and there is no more wine. Translation, crisis. And so his mom says, don't worry, speak to him. And he says, well, bring water. And he turned water 
into wine. In fact, it was so good, the guy, the, the master of ceremonies there said, well, you guys saved the best wine for last, right? Now, when we see that, we say that's a mighty act. It showed glory. And John said, this was the first display of the glory of Jesus. And as you follow the story over and over, you see very many mighty acts revealing the glory of who Jesus is. But what was the apex act, the culminating act of his glory? Well, in John chapter 12, he anticipates what that was in John 8, 19 and 20. In John 12, Jesus is now coming towards the end. We're coming towards the end of this narrative. And John 12, verse 23, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 27, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, for this very reason I came to this world. 28, Father, glorify your name. Jesus is going to be glorified, but when he's glorified, the Father is glorified. How is this going to happen? Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Verse 32, and I, Jesus speaking, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What was he talking about? Verse 33, he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Glory, mighty acts. But the most glorious revelation of God in Jesus was his weakest act. Or rather, him at his weakest. If Jesus truly is the Son of God, who is God, the divine Logos, what is he doing as a criminal on the cross? Well, it's very simple. Because many people were looking for their own lights, and God is visiting that with his judgment. But because of grace and truth, love and faithfulness, he decides to put the consequences of that punishment on his son and not on those who would believe. That reveals a glorious God. Do you recognize Jesus in that way? Or is it Jesus who is like a cosmic ATM machine? Jesus on the cross is the ultimate revelation of God. And if he's the ultimate revelation of God, he is the ultimate purpose for living. But there's one more thing. If that recognizes Jesus for who he is, then receiving Jesus, receiving Jesus is to rest on that recognition. You see, because the light comes, it says something about Jesus, but it also says something about you. John said, Jesus did many mighty acts. I can't write all of them in this book, but the one I have written is so that you would know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, but then he turns to you and says, in believing in that, you would have eternal life in him. You see, there was another beginning in the book of Genesis, and it says, in the beginning, God said, let there be light. That light started creating many things, but its apex creation was human beings. But when you believe in Jesus, the light that has come upon you, there's another creation that is formed, verse 12 and 13. But for those who believed, uh, sorry, verse 12, yet all did who, who did receive him to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How were they created? Just by the normal interaction between men and women? No. 13, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but they were born 
of God. If you receive Jesus as the true light and not the light in other places, then you become a new creation. And that creation gives you a new purpose. I don't know if some of us here are still clutching in that darkness, still looking for that light. Why not receive Jesus on the cross? Or maybe some of us here have found that light. But the way we live our lives makes Jesus the secondary light, while the other thing, that thing, is the primary light. Why not change that? Because when you see Jesus as your ultimate purpose, you can find your specific purpose. You don't live for your purpose, you live for God's purpose. And there's a promise and a guarantee in Romans 8.28 that all things, we know that all things work together for good for those who love him and are called not to their purpose but to his purpose. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word in the scriptures. We thank you for your word in Jesus. We thank you that these scriptures reveal Jesus, but we thank you that Jesus has also come into this world. We thank you that Jesus died for us, but we thank you that he lives again. We thank you that because he lives again, we also can live as well. We thank you because he is the ultimate purpose for living, we can find our specific and personal purpose in him. And Lord, we ask, as we see in the promise in John 6, if any will come to Jesus, you will not cast them away. As people, as some of us are contemplating coming to him, Lord, draw them to yourselves and do not cast them away. And for many of us that need this light to shine once again in our lives so that we can reconfigure how we live our lives, Lord, be available to us and let us seek our purpose more and more and live in our purpose. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.